down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets around, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets around, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy, the only libertarian show, to my knowledge, that is recorded over Eastern Time and Central Time. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a time it's a time traveling show. It's a, roughly an hour long, but the two people recording it are roughly an hour apart in time. Yes. <laughs> so we start where we end. Yeah. So as we uh, end where we start. Yep. If you guys haven't listened before, I'm Jacob Lindsay, um, and I'm Mason joined at, yeah, joined by Mason every week, or I, maybe I join him because we're co-hosts. <laughs> so yes. uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, you know, usually just to for everybody who this is their first episode to break it down, we usually review a wine and then talk about you know whatever libertarian topics come to mind or um, that we encountered during the week. And I think I got a couple of good ones this week, and I don't want the episode to run too long, so I figured we could get right into the reviews right away. Now, last week, I picked up a Georgian wine from the Russian store, because uh, this is a grocery store that Victoria, my wife, and I shop at uh, to get you know good Russian stuff, and they have a lot of Eastern European things. And one, mm-hmm. of, one of the things that this particular store here in Dallas, or it's actually in Richardson, what one of the things that they do is they have uh, a lot of Eastern European selection of wines so they have you know moldovan wine and georgian wine i think they had they had a few armenian there's uh i didn't see any ukrainian and i looked again harder this time and there there wasn't but there was from various regions of russia and a few from kazakhstan Mm -hmm. Um, and i think we talked about that last week a little bit so this week it's the same the same uh winery or same brand as i don't know i'm not exactly sure how they do it there but it's it's called Wine Man. That's the uh, winery, from my understanding. Um, the grape varietal of this one is also Saparavi. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that's how you call it, or that's how you pronounce it. Now, last week, it was also Saparavi, but it was a blend, so there might have been some cab in it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's usually what they use to fill this, it seems like, or Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, it says it's 100% Saparavi, oh. and it's... Um, what I thought was interesting about it is one of the things that Georgia is really well known is uh, for is fermenting their wine in clay pots that are buried in the ground. Mm-hmm. And and this particular wine has spent some time in a clay pot in the ground to, to do its fermentation, and then its fermentation was finished off in oak. Yeah, uh, they... They do a mix of that sometimes. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting, and that and it's what you know. I think that's what that that region is known for. I, and while I was doing some research on this, I guess there is a, a couple of vineyards and wineries up in Oregon that have started doing clay pots as well, just because it gives it a, a different flavor. That I mean, you know, a lot of the flavor, particularly in reds that that are in the wine, come from the oak itself. So, and the more time that's spent in the oak, the the different flavors it'll it'll produce. Um, and you know, sometimes it's new oak, new oaks produce different flavors than old oaks and you know, so on and so forth. Uh, this one is uh 2016 vintage. It's 12% alcohol by volume. Uh, I'm going to take a quick sip of it and I'll mm-hmm. tell you guys what I think. I haven't tried it yet. So this yeah, will be, so uh, while, while he sips it, um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, tasting anarchy at twitter.com, you want to send us an email, uh, tasting anarchy at gmail.com. There's also tasting anarchy.com. 
we're endeavor to have reviews and other things like that when you know we get our act together and, and do things like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to discuss the wine I'm sipping on tonight because Jacob and I have something planned for it for next week's show chronologically. If you uh, somehow manage to figure out what order we quarter them on, depending on how we yeah. release them. Well, yeah. um, uh, so I, I think we're more or less releasing them in order now. Um, mm-hmm. so this is really interesting. This one, the wine that I just took a sip from, it is, uh, even though it's only 12% alcohol by volume, substantially more of an alcohol taste than the previous one. Hmm. Um, it, it does have sort of, you know how like when you drink something with a lot of alcohol, it sort of like tightens your chest up a little bit. Um, um I, I might not know that feeling, but okay. I think I, I think I understand. Okay. Yeah. So like, there's like a, it's it's a you know for me at least with the strong alcohol it, it's almost like it takes your breath away a little bit so um it does have that it's also kind of uh you can feel it in your nose quite a bit um it does have it's not as much of the mouthwatery fruit flavor as the previous one but it is very clearly fruity so like it's um like the you know the you know you and I have both spent some time in California uh as we've mentioned many times on the show you know those like really dark red cherries that or that you can get in the Central Valley from like the guys on the side of the road. I, I I haven't had them. I know of them. Okay. But yeah, your wife I think would probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you get these, and they've got. They're not. Uh, if they're if they're underripe, they're very sour. But if they're overripe, they're like really juicy and sweet. This has that sort of sweetness, but without the juiciness. So it does taste very much like cherry, and it's not tart like an underripe cherry or like a red cherry. It's like a dark, one of those dark colored cherries, like the black cherries or whatever, whatever color they are. Uh, it's got that. It It's a little bit spicy, kind of like a pepper maybe. And um, and I don't know if this comes from the clay, but because I know that this had spent some time in clay, I'm going to say that it is. It tastes a little bit metallic. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's got a little bit of like... Maybe like an aluminum kind of flavor. Not it's not yeah, it's were, not copper. It's like a more of like a aluminum. Yeah, or there there something. was a red that you had that was a blend that I thought had a metallic taste to it. Mm. Um, and then um, I remember I'm blanking on the name. Mm-hmm. It's the there's a variety that we both said had like a pepper flavor. Oh right. I wonder um, if that variety is a derivative of this grape type because as we discussed last week, this is a very old grape type. Yeah, it is. It's very old. They don't know for sure if it's the oldest, but they know that they've been cultivating this grape. And I think that like the grape, the grape geneticists with that, that actually Mm -hmm. might be something interesting for us to look into for a future show is just that if we could talk to a grape geneticist or just do some research on it, but they've been doing a lot of these genetic tracebacks. And even though the story is that Pinot Noir was developed or discovered in Germany, um, they think that might actually be one of the oldest wine varietals is Pinot Noir. But this varietal, uh, I guess they've discovered and it goes back at least 4,000 years in Georgia. Um, and Georgia as a wine growing region has been growing wine for over 6,000. So, uh, it's a very old region. They've been growing grapes there. Possibly the first, since people first started fermenting grapes, that might be one of the oldest places. I mean, obviously they don't know for sure, but, uh, it's very old and it's very, and they've been doing it old. <laughs> yeah. And they've been doing it roughly the same way for as far back as they have evidence for. Yeah. Um, very old, many varieties, but. One of the things that's interesting about Georgian wine is it doesn't seem to be very stagnant in the methods used. Mm-hmm. They do steel, they do oak, they mm-hmm. do the clay pots. Like they will experiment with the different varieties and techniques yeah. on yeah. how to produce a good wine. Like well, it yeah. seems like they're, they're interested in the wine. Well, and also what's interesting too, I was watching some YouTube videos about it. It seems like um, 
it's just kind of like something that everybody does. Sort of like, you know, uh-huh. if, if you made beer or whatever, uh, if you were in a culture that was very beer heavy, it used, you know, back in the old days with Germany and stuff like that, it was like a wife's job to make sure that there was beer uh-huh. and, and they would make it. And it's sort of the same thing in Georgia, but it doesn't seem like it's specifically a wife's thing. It's just every family has some grapes. They pick the grapes and they make wine. That's just one of the things that they do. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that was, I thought, very interesting from just kind of observing that on the, um, the YouTube uh, video that I was watching is that they, you know, the family is just like, yeah, you know, this is the time we go out, we pick our grapes, we smash them up in this old log, and then we put them in the clay pots, and then, and then we bury them, and then we dig them up a couple of months later, mm-hmm. and that's our wine. You know, I just think that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic, I guess, to their culture, where it's just something that everybody does. Whereas, yeah. like, to me, yeah. making wine's a little bit of a mystery, not a mystery exactly, because I've made beer a lot, so I kind of know the, I know how the fermentation process works, I understand that, but it's mm-hmm. like a mystery in that, like, I've never made wine, it does seem kind of, one of the things that you and I have sort are trying to sort of keep this show more of a down-to-earth and understandable wine show, mm-hmm. is um, since you and I are not experts, but it seems sort of more like a hoity-toity process, like making wine. It's not like brewers who are like, yeah, we're brewers or whatever. It's more like you expect them to speak French and like hold their pinkies up when they're drinking and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a mystique to wine creation where, you know, like from the, just the, this much more acidity was put in the soil this year and it did this. And the Georgians are like, uh, we didn't die from shelling or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah right. Yeah. And we just collected yeah. this and we're, this is what yeah, we this, do. And that's the thing is like, I don't think there's, I, I don't think it, it shouldn't sound like I'm being more callous that they don't put such focus on, you know, making sure the grapes are healthy and things like that. But it, it also seems to me like they've got such age in doing it and experience that it's kind of a, you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah, like, exactly. It, we don't we don't need to go reinvent the wheel each go around right. to try to make good wine. It's like, this is the wine I like, so this is the wine I make. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that, like, if it's a wine that's very similar to what their dad made, then, uh, you know, it reminds them of their childhood. It, you, know, that, you know, smells and flavors have a lot of uh, memory associations and stuff, so it just becomes part of your heritage when you can, like, look back and... And be like, this is the wine that I drink. It's it reminds me of my childhood, and my dad drank the same thing that his dad made, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad, and his dad, and so on and so forth. Maybe possibly even back six thousand years. Yeah, yeah, that is a very unique heritage. Yeah, it, it really is very very interesting. And uh, isn't Tom Woods? Is he Georgian or Armenian? Armenian. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I knew. I, side. Yeah, I knew he was from that part of the world somewhere. So I always thought that was that would be interesting to see if his family had any, you know, hidden family recipes or something like that. That would be very interesting. Yeah. But yeah. unfortunately, I think it was on his dad's side, and his dad passed early. Yep. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know about his grandparents' age on that side. Mm-hmm. I know his mom's still around. Yeah. yeah. But I don't believe she's Armenian. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Well, I, 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 for passing, some reason, I thought they were both from there. Um, I don't remember that being the case. Okay. Certainly could be. All right. I just don't remember that being the case. Yeah. But uh, speaking of passing, uh, John McCain is no longer with us. That's that is uh, a fact, or it seems to be, unless it's like uh, <laughs> unless it's some sort of double cross, you know, which I wouldn't put past him. But uh, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the thing is, you know. I, I thought about this because as soon as I you texted at me, I, Victoria and I were actually out, but I was I was thinking mm-hmm. about post, posting something mean on Twitter or Facebook, 
and uh and i and i logged in and obviously and all of the kind of like snarky you know edgy libertarians and edgy anarchists were put posting all this like you shouldn't be sad that he's dead ha 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 i'm glad like let's do shots like that kind of thing and i was like you know Mm -hmm. i I don't really want to celebrate anyone's death in particular john mccain Mm -hmm. has done a a lot of bad stuff and um you know i i don't really think his motives were pure a lot of people think he his motives were pure but I don't really I'm I'm more of a I don't care what people's intentions are I care what the results of their actions are so mm-hmm. um you know what is this saying like the road to hell is paved with good intentions Correct. Um, so you know he may have thought he was doing the right thing but he's got the blood of thousands of kids on his hands and but what I end up thinking about and this is actually what I end up posting with uh anarcho the anarcho christian or Christian libertarians or whatever the group is on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. was this is to think of John McCain and think of his family and think of all the bad things that he's done. He, he did take action to, I guess, get into office and put, position himself to be able to do those things. However, if people had not gotten behind him and elected him and voted him, and it doesn't even have to be a majority of people because as we know, it only takes about 10% of highly dedicated people to affect change in the world um, or in a population. Uh, if they had, you know, thought about this, and one of the reasons why I kind of go back and forth on voting is I don't want to put somebody in the position where they will commit such atrocities as voting to have just hate rain down on Yemenis kids and Syrian kids uh-huh. and Afghani kids and, you know, and when he was in the military on Vietnamese kids and probably Laotian and Cambodian kids and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. And that, you know, the military stuff aside, I think one of the things that I guess anarcho-Christians or anarcho-libertarians need to think about when they vote is, you know, when you when you pull the lever and elect somebody to go into office, inevitably they're going to have to make a hard decision. And, they're, and the hard decision is probably going to result in the death of innocent people. And by you putting them in that position, part of that responsibility is on you. So just think about that, I guess, when... When you go to vote, like, I don't think I've ever voted for anybody who won. Um, mm-hmm. usually I write in, uh, occasionally I, I do vote on, you know, uh, initiatives and stuff. And like I said, I go back and forth. I can sort of see, I can see arguments on both sides, but this is just one of the things that kind of came to mind is when he died, I think I probably said it and maybe even said on the show that like I would, I was, you know, waiting for him to be dead or whatever. Now he's dead. I, I don't know. Like, I think his, I'm sure his family's very sad about it. And, um, it's a, just a very weird situation. He's a, a really terrible guy, but it doesn't seem like very many people realize how terrible he is. And also some mm-hmm. of, some of his power does come from the inactivity of re- just regular Americans. Um, yeah. and so that's kind of something to think about too, is if, if he, if he bears the responsibility for aggravating war around the world, people who vote for him also bear some of that responsibility too. And it's something that and people the, need to think about. And, and the people who didn't put forth more of an effort to stop it, mm-hmm. like to, you know, like when he was singing bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, not standing up immediately and saying, you know, you're calling for the death of people who have done you no harm. Yeah. And, and who, the majority of them aren't even capable of doing you any harm. Like if you didn't, yeah. they, I mean, I'm sure they know America exists, but they don't know you exist. So, uh, well, they, they may know he exists because he ran for president. But well, they, they not. probably yeah. know John McCain, but they don't know you or me. And, yeah. you know, and, and again, we're not in, 
his district or anything like that, but a lot of state. people did support him or yeah, his state. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was, there is some good humor that came about on Twitter from him, uh, being dead. And that's always that, I guess, looking for the silver lining, lining. There's pretty good stuff. So they had one that I thought was pretty funny where somebody voted, um, uh, John McCain has passed away and, ha- and, and has given up his seat, um, in the Senate. In other news, Detroit, uh, John McCain registers to vote, vote in Detroit. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> Registered to vote twice in Detroit. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, hmm. which I thought was pretty funny. And there was, there's been some other humorous things like that, but, uh, yeah. And I, I know I felt, I felt like, is. you know, at, 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 I, I didn't know what to say about any of it. And so I kind of was like, I guess this will be, let's make a different point. Let's make the point that just think about who you're voting for when you vote. And if, if you care about that person, do you really want them in the position where they're going to have to make decisions like that? Yeah. And that's the thing is like, you know, do you reward those who seek power? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like somebody like Mary Ruhr running. Mm -hmm. It's like Mary Ruhr, you know, I have every faith that I can place in somebody that isn't an immediate family member you or somebody like that that yeah. Mary Ver would exercise everything in her power to bring no one to harm through government action the best she understood yeah you know but that's something I don't really often consider because like I you know and this is one of those things that's like especially somebody like Mary Ruhr's case is like if you choose to run she knows what that means right you know it's not like not like somebody who wants to be sheriff because the sheriff's corrupt in town and he thinks that you know, he'd be a good sheriff because he's not corrupt. You know, he's not a he's not a D back. He's right. gonna be a good guy. And then, you know, the first night out on patrol, he's like, I'm gonna take care of this neighborhood. Some kid's on PCP, you right. know, seventeen, and like has just murdered his parents because he's you know whacked out on drugs. And then the guy has to shoot him because the kid's coming at him with a knife. Yeah, and like has no way to bring him down. Like you know, in the ultimate, like yeah, I'm sure with seventeen guys and you know cattle prods, they could have knocked him unconscious or you know whatever. Sure, sure. but. You know, and then he's killed the kid. Yeah. And, you know, all he wanted to do was stop the corruption of the previous sheriff. Right. Well, and that's, you know, and that's the inherent nature, though, of the of a of the government apparatus. Power. Yeah. That's it's that the the apparatus itself is corrupting and and for and, you know, granted, killing the kid may be justified in a property rights type situation. But, um, you know, that's a, not a position I'd wish for anybody. So I'm not sure that I I want anybody to uh to be in that position. But kind of going back to Mary Ruart, I, I think that one of the things that I appreciate about her and about a lot of other libertarians too is that although it would be nice to win and and for the culture the culture to change, but as I guess Andrew Breitbart said, um, politics is down downwind or downstream of culture. And uh, one of the things that Mary Ruart kind of always presses is that the whole point of running a libertarian is not specifically to win. I mean, it would be nice, but mm-hmm. the whole the the whole point of a libertarian running and trying to get some attention is that it does affect the culture in a way that will hopefully switch, like shift it. So if somebody, like for example, if uh, Gary Johnson had gotten on stage with Trump and Hillary, I don't know that it would have been a great turnout. I, I think I'm not sure that he has the ability to debate them in a way that would have been effective for liberty. Larry Sharp, on the other hand, he would have. And this kind of brings us to my very first topic of the night is uh, messaging. And uh, so this kind of came about this week. I was I don't go on Facebook very often. I know that I think you deleted your account, um, but I was uh-huh. just kind of scrolling through Facebook and um, something caught my eye. And that was that a mutual friend of ours who um, 
I won't bring him up because I don't because I am going to be critical of what he posted. But a mutual friend of ours posted something on a thing. So as uh, abolitionists, to use uh, the term that that we both like and that you you kind of coined, um, uh. we're sort of like evangelicals in a sense. So. Uh, what we're trying to do in the same way that like an evangelical is trying to win people over for God, we're trying to win people over to these ideas. Uh-huh. And um, like an abolitionist back in the day, you, you've got a lot of these stories and stuff like that about them, like the ones that would go around and like be violent against slave owners and stuff like that. And it's just not really a very effective way to end slavery unless you're Abraham Lincoln and kill 600,000 people to do it. So at least, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this was a situation kind of that was online. So there's a um, there's a product out there, and the product is like a it's kind of like a plastic box that allows you to put on socks without bending down. Um, and so this is you know it's kind of a funny product that or be, well it's, the product itself looks very useful because like people who can't bend down and like put on their socks like somebody who's disabled or pregnant or like an old person you know one of those things being mm-hmm. able to being able to get socks on kind of makes sense right. Um, and, but the commercial is very silly. It's an infomercial. It's like, like where somebody's like, whoa, I can't bend down to put my socks on. And then, or they'll, they'll be putting their socks on in the video and they're like tripping and like knocking over the spaghetti. It's, and it's very exaggerated. Yeah, exactly. Very exaggerated. Um, so, but, but the, the bottom line is that this, this product helps you put socks on and it would be a good thing for disabled or old folks. Um, mm-hmm. so, somebody commented on it. This is not our friend. Um, they commented, um, what makes me really frustrated and annoyed about these types of gadgets products is that they are clearly meant for disabled elderly or pregnant people but they advertise them or the way that they advertise them is so cheesy um and then it says yeah so cheesy her her grammar is not great but so it's uh, (laughs) almost almost making a mockery of what uh its own product um what its own product is is trying to convey uh ugh it's just so stupid if they really if they really wanted this to help people then they would they would their advertising would target the elderly pregnant or um disabled people so that's basically her comment now our mutual friend kind of had a aggressive response to it and and his response was are you aware uh this is how i'm reading it now granted he may have not typed it this way but this is how it reads to me are you aware that to make these products specifically for people with disabilities would require fda approval are you aware that uh gaining such approval takes an average of 10 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh it's the government that causes these products to be advertised in such a way that meets that doesn't meet with your petty little disapproval or doesn't yeah um yet you blame companies like these for trying to reach their target market uh in the most cost effective ways possible this keeps their price low enough for the disabled to actually afford i know you didn't know but you didn't ask either before making an uninformed comment <laughs> uh so i want to know the initials so badly <laughs> rc uh, that's what i thought yeah yep so I miss him so much. I I do too. And the thing is, is like he in a long form conversation, he makes such great points, and he's been very, I think, uh, instrumental in at least I, I would say probably your conversion as well, but my conversion to anarchy. Um, and and I think I had kind of he's a militant atheist, and like he and I had some of these really long religious conversations where he got to the point where he would go. Uh, I really like that religion you're telling me about, Jake, but that's not the Christianity that I see in the world, and that's why I'm not a Christian. And so, like, he's open to these ideas, and he is willing to have a very long-form conversation, but the point, I guess, of me bringing this up is I don't think that this is a good way to treat people 
that's going to make them want to come over to our side, right? Mm. So the way I would phrase it, and, and we'll see what, what you would have phrased it, I would have said like uh, to this chick, uh, her name, her first name, Sandra. So I say, Sandra, you know, I, I totally get it. Um, it is frustrating when you see situations like this where there's a product that you can see clearly would help these people, but um, it's being marketed in a very goofy way. And, and, the, and the video is very goofy, LOL, or something, you know, something like that to make it lighthearted. And you say, but the reality of the situation is that uh, the government's put restrictions on marketing these types of products to the disabled or elderly. If you are specifically targeting a group like this, it could take up to 10 years for you to gain approval from the FDA. And in the meantime, an injunction will be placed on your product so that you can't sell it at all. And you say, like, this is one of the reasons why libertarians and, and uh, people on the you know freedom spectrum or whatever – support making these laws more relaxed and trying to roll back the FDA because these, this is a product that really could help old people and they should know about it, but mm-hmm. we're just not able to get the message out to them. And so this company is doing their best to try to make sure that other people are aware of the product's existence. And then, you know, you say it in a nice way, maybe if it's, if it's a nice way that, um, it isn't going to shut people off. And this is, you know, going back to the, the book that you and I've talked about before, uh, art of libertarian persuasion. Um, this is what we call like a libertarian macho flash is in in his comment, he's showing how much he knows and belittling the other person for how little they know. And mm-hmm. and so in this one thing is you're immediately shutting the other person off is they go like, oh, this person is treating me like a piece of shit. Um, I'm not going to listen to what they have to say. And it, and it, even if it's not conscious, they, they're, they've, you've already shut the conversation off in order to convince somebody to come over to your ideas. Like we're evangelicals in this sense. Like we're evangelicals for liberty. We're trying to get them to come over and save. We're not trying to save ourselves. We're already saved. We're already anarchists. We're trying to save them as well. So mm-hmm. let's bring them over. You've got to use, you've got to use persuasion to do it and to, to to persuade somebody, you have to first empathize with their position, show them that you understand what is, what their point of view is, and show them that you have the same goal as they have, and then say, but you're not identifying the, the problem. The actual problem is here, and then let them discover the problem so that when they discover it, they go, aha, it was my idea that this was wrong, and now I have discovered the solution, and the solution is liberty. Mm. And, and that makes it a much more personal, I guess, conversion. Yeah, I, the thing, there are several things that I have, I take issue, not I, the logic of the conversion theory isn't bad, necessarily. My, I don't, like, you may have planted seeds more in this way to me, you know, trying to bring me along than I realize. But I really kind of just beat my own self over the head. And, you know, that's kind yeah. of more to your point. Like I found these points of view to be like the way I was applying them and, and thinking about them in my, my conversion. Like personally, yeah. I, it, it's hard because, you know, I, I don't interact a lot of the time mm-hmm. on social media. Like I go on Reddit, I, I don't comment. Mm-hmm. I, I'll text you a picture and then the comment or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, instead of posting on Reddit and basically I'd be shit posting right. um, from most people's view when I'd really be, you know, like putting a, maybe a cogent and self-leading post. And, and that's kind of the problem I see a lot of the time now is even when you coach something from a standpoint of, you know, deep in liberty and deep in thought and kind of showing somebody like, look, I agree. This is, you know, you and I are on the same page with this. However, here's the true problem that, you know, there's 
there are some restrictions here that you may not be aware of, and I'm not telling you that you're not aware of them. I'm just saying, like, the issue is that there's, you know, restrictions that are occurring here that make this impossible, and wouldn't it be great if they didn't exist? Or, you know, however you, yeah. you tag out on that. And I have this issue with my wife a lot of the time where, like, today we were driving and we were talking about, like, in my neighborhood, there are several homes that are in foreclosure mm-hmm. or something. We're not exactly sure. And one of the houses I've taken to cutting the yard because I hate the fact that it's not cut. Right. And, like, I started asking, like, my wife, like, what do you think they would do if I just started ripping out these super overgrown, like, ornamental plants that have been ruined by neglect? Right. And they're not, you can't return, restore them. And I was thinking, like, what would happen, like, if I just, you know, took all of that out and took it back to grass and things like that? I right. was com- not complaining, but talking about, you know, older families that have five-bedroom homes, mm-hmm. that the house has gone to pot and the yard has gone to crap because the old family can't take care of it. Mm-hmm. And my immediate responses were like, well, that's a failure of the market because the government has distorted the market so badly that the right. market can't react when families stopped having excessive children and families stopped having multi-unit homes, right. multi-generational multi homes. Like your grandmother owns a home yep. that she's been in for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how well she does with the upkeep or, you know, well, how we, well I mean, some, Yeah, somebody from our family has always lived with her, so uh, she doesn't live alone. So right now, Jesse lives with her and Jody Beth and Janie both come down to make sure things are going okay. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then they do the yard work and stuff like that and keep it, keep it kind of nice. I mean, we, there's never been a time when she either wasn't able to do it herself, um, mm-hmm. or when one of us didn't live with her. Yeah. So that answers that question. Like, yeah. you know, your grandmother probably could have downsized, downsized yeah. with a, a sizable nest egg given where she lives in California and the yeah. value of the home. Oh yeah. For you sure. know, yeah. really done very well you know, for setting herself into a better retirement village, whatever it is. Right, not not right. that she needs those things, but, yeah. you know, could have done those things. But, like, that was my, my immediate mental response was, like, it's a shame that the government has distorted the market so badly and I, my, my you know, and destroyed the housing market. But then yeah. I had tried to coach my statement to my wife, like, well, it's too bad the government has, like, distorted the market and, and kind of made things very difficult. So you can't hire somebody like um, your uncle who plays is a rock star. Yeah. Like, if he wasn't doing, you know, he he's fairly well being a rock star. Right. But, like, if he was still struggling a little bit with that or needed to make side money, yeah. you know, he's probably pretty handy. Sure, yeah. And could provide a low-cost service of maintaining homes. Right. And things like that. But they've made it so onerous to have your own business and be yeah. a business person sure. that you don't have people who can take on these risks of, you know, and the litigious and all that. But I was trying to coach my argument much more of, like, well, and like we say the same thing in my neighborhood, like too bad there there aren't these kids out trying to make some money yeah. mowing yards. Because like, yeah, the first summer you mow yards, it's going to be, you know, six or seven weeks before you can really cut a straight line. And, you know, it, it, like it doesn't seem hard to mow a lawn until you mow a lawn repeatedly right. and you're like, man, I missed that piece again. Like yeah. you start seeing the places where you have trouble doing it. and you know, how you can improve, you know, all that stuff that mm-hmm. goes with mowing a yard. Mm-hmm. And it was so 
hard for me to not just rush into this. Yeah. <laughs> Half the government and they're the problem. And, you know, right. Like all of these 97 different distortions because my wife kind of shuts down the conversation at that point because while well, she's a libertarian, she's not an anarchist. And, you know, she's not a, as far along the liberty path as I think a lot of the times. Right. And so she does agree that the government's a problem in these markets, but she doesn't always have the same solution that I do, which is just like deregulate all of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and, you, know. you know, kind of, I, I, I don't know. What, I mean, I won't use your guys' situation as an example, but when I, when I talk to other people who either are not really aware that I'm an anarchist or they don't realize how, it, how much of a radical I am. Is that instead of, instead of starting the argument from, this is why the, this is what the government does, the government does this, 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 and this, and that's all destroying it is, is I kind of try to pause the conversation. So let's say that somebody's like, man, I wish that house wasn't so overgrown. And, and you say, you say, yeah, it, you know, it really doesn't look great. It, it does make the neighborhood look kind of crummy. Um, let's think, let's like kind of imagine like a free market solution for that. Like what, how would we take care of that without, like calling the police or trying to get the government involved in, in solving. Yeah, you did that to me the other day. Yeah. So like, yeah, well, yeah, this is, it's a good way to, to just get a conversation going. So if you, uh -huh. you can, you can frame this conversation because, you know, sometimes it's just like you're playing a game, you're playing a mind game and go like, so let's couch this in, in the world of make believe for a minute. And let's just say, what, what could maybe the free market solution to this be? And, and, you know, I don't know what your wife would say, but like, let's say it's just, you're talking to a kid. The kid goes, well, maybe, uh, maybe a free market solution would be, I could start a business to mow lawns and I could go take care of it for them at like a really inexpensive price. Or if they weren't willing to pay for it, maybe some of the neighbors would be willing to pool their money and give me 20 bucks to go mow their yard. And he said, great. You know, that, that actually does sound like a really good idea, little Jimmy or whatever. Um, uh, why don't we like look into it and see, see what's involved, um, with getting that done. And then little Jimmy will discover as he's investigating this, that there's a lot of licensure laws and there's a lot of regulation that would prevent him if he's under a certain age and all this sort of stuff from getting that going. And it, and it, it is very disheartening when you start discovering that on your own, but it's also enraging because you've already got the seed in your mind that this is an opportunity for me to get a, a step up. I can maybe get the neighbors to give me 20 bucks to mow some other dude's lawn because it makes their yards look bad too. And if, if four of them chip in five bucks, they'll give me 20 bucks. I'll do it. That's great. I'll go buy you some GI Joes or whatever. Um, whatever kids buy nowadays. I don't, I don't know. I, that's what I would have bought. <laughs> that, <laughs> exactly. That's what but I would have bought. But. So by that same token, like that was the thing that, so I have, so in my neighborhood, there's a lot of people who have dogs and there's this one dog and his name is G mm -hmm. and G loves Henry mm -hmm. and G's owner is the neighborhood dog egg encyclopedia mm. she knows almost every dog by name like she you know she doesn't know my name like i sort of know her name yeah but like we know where each other lives we know each other's dog's names we kind of know each other's dog's habits but like she knows every dog right so when you walk out my front door the the house that's on the corner across the street mm -hmm. has been in foreclosure since almost the time we moved in right and there's a house further down that was for rent or was being rented by people. And I think it was a Navy guy. And like they, they got the home really, really nice years ago. Yeah. First people moved in, absolutely destroyed it. The second people moved in and they destroyed it even worse. Oh, like, wow. Okay. Took it to Pottsville. Yeah. And so it's been on the market for a very long time. There's not even a sign in the front yard anymore. Wow. That it's for sale. And I literally the other day, because I was on vacation all the last week, started my vacation by going down there and mowing the front yard myself. Right. And like it was two and a half feet tall. 
Wow. And like I had to weedy an entire section and then mow it. And like, you know, I mowed and bagged. And so like it wouldn't fester, you know, like I mm-hmm. did everything I could to try to bring this lawn together. And like the people across the street from me, like directly across the street, yeah. like they're, he's in the Navy and they're, you know, two years younger than us or so. Right. And they've got a couple of kids in the house that I was saying has been in foreclosure since we moved in here, basically. Like, they eventually this summer hired a group of kids who were putting out flyers saying, you know, we'll mow for cash. Right. Like, just trying to make some money. And I yeah. was, like, super proud of these kids. So somebody hired these kids to mow this house, at, you know, on some interval. And the guy across the street at one point got mad that it was so long he went and cut it. You know, he cut the entire front yard. And he did a pretty good job. And I was making fun of him for taking money out of these kids' mouths. Oh, <laughs> Basically right, yeah. going like, dude, like he took the, you know, he's like, I just couldn't take it anymore. Right. But I was talking to his wife and she's like, I saw you mowing the yard down the street, like, you know, blah, 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 the city. And I'm like, but that's my tax dollars. Right. Like you, you're paying to mow that yard. Like, and they're not going to do a good job and it's going to look bad still. And right. I was talking to the dog encyclopedia lady and the same thing. She's like, well, why didn't you just wait for the city? I'm like, cause it made my neighborhood look like, you know, some bad words. And she's like, right. you know, she, in her mind, it kind of like, she's like, oh yeah. It's like, look, it's affecting my property value. Right. Like the, the neighbors who don't edge the sidewalk. Yeah. Like I understand like my neighbor directly next to me, he's older. They're both retired now. He doesn't work. She doesn't work and they're on a fixed income. I'm sure they've got, you know, some savings or whatever. Right. But he's got some, you know, problems, but he used to have a really, really nice yard and it hurts him that he can't go out weedy and, you know, yeah. make his yard look nice. Right. But he wants to be alive. You know, yeah. I don't blame him. Yeah. So it doesn't take me anything to weedy that. Sure. And, you know, he ended up giving me like a 24 case of beer, which, right. which is nice. I didn't really want, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. still appreciated. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, then I was talking to the guy who literally lives next door to the house I mowed and he's like, blah, blah, blah. Like the city's going to come out and do it. I'm like, I wanted to tell him, it's like, dude, I, I know I didn't do the best job here, but you think the city was going to do better? Your right. yard looks nice all the time. Why didn't you mow it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's not and like I the yards that, are huge, but then again, yeah, it is their time, and so they they'll spend yeah. it doing what they want to do. But but like if he that's just a good it. yeah, that's I mean that's yeah. a good example though to set for other people is like you like you you know it doesn't look good. You talk to them, and this is kind of goes back to what you remember the episode that I did with Nate where we talk mm-hmm. about it. It's like talking to your neighbors and knowing your neighbors goes a long way, and and you're doing that in your neighborhood, and by talking to them and kind of knowing who they are and what's going on. um, they recognize that you are taking this step and they'll remember that. And whether, mm-hmm. whether it actually amounts to anything more than a case of beer, um, it's, they'll remember that you did that and that does have a ripple effect. And especially if you couch the situation in liberty, you can kind of have that ripple effect where they think about it when you, you know, when they say, well, the city will come to it and you're like, you know, uh, I appreciate the city, the city will come and do it, but, uh, I don't really have faith that they're going to do a good job. And, um, I think I'll do a better job myself. And I think it's also part of my responsibility as somebody who lives in this neighborhood to make sure that my neighborhood looks good where I can. Like I'm busy. I've got a, I've got a young family and stuff like that. But this was one, this was one time when I could go out there and do it. And I was happy to make my neighborhood look good. It reflects well on my property. And, and that, yeah. that kind of like, that, that sticks with people. They think about it and they, and maybe next time when the grass starts getting a little bit longer, they'll go like, yeah, you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me at all to just, you know, 
instead of just mowing and stopping at my property line, mow all the way across. And this we used to do this when I lived in uh, in Virginia Beach. Is our lawn was adjacent to another one, and it was it was like five or six Navy guys who lived in the house next to us, and they didn't do, mm-hmm. they didn't do a great job keeping their yard up. So when I mowed our front lawn, I just mowed all the way across instead of mm-hmm. and onto their property, and I was happy to do it. I didn't do their backyard, but uh, but I had no problem doing the front yard. Just make sure that it looked okay. Yeah. And, and that's the that's kind of the ultimate thing is like just looking out for what you can, mm-hmm. and if you can make an opportunity to discuss liberty and those other things. Yeah, Great. Right. So I had an article Great. that I don't know if you had budgeted to talk about, but I, I know you read it. Um, it's a Texas ISP. And oh yeah. I don't remember the name of it. Right. That is um, being sued by the music industry, mm-hmm. and they are counter suing or. I'm not sure if they took them to court first. You know, this is a lawsuit where the music industry is attempting to enforce them enforcing copyright. Right. And they're basically saying, we dispute your technology that even, like, and I didn't understand how they were disputing the technology. I knew it was a very good argument, but I couldn't follow it completely. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, they were disputing. What's interesting is I did, I did, I, you know, when I was at work, uh, reading the article and I was like, huh, this is really interesting because it, it does take place in Texas is our mm-hmm. old ISP or well, your current ISP, my old ISP in, um, Virginia actually had a very similar lawsuit, uh, just a few years ago. Um, and they mm-hmm. settled, they ended up settling, but it was, you know, you know, some sort of, I, I, I won't say Hollywood, but somebody in the music industry was suing them saying that you guys need to be basically the curators of access. You have to stop people from doing things illegally. And Cox does, uh, to some degree, they're very lax on it, but like if you're downloading, you know, like I used to like a terabyte a month of information, um, they are, they'll shut you down and you've got to justify what you were doing and, and what you were downloading, you know? And, uh, yeah, Cox does it, Cox does it in two ways. If you get a notice or if they receive a cease and desist, they will forward it to you. Mm-hmm. Just saying, you're busted, remove it. Don't make us, don't make us reach out to you again. Mm-hmm. Then they have the bandwidth caps that where it's like, look, you're putting a strain on our network. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily, we're not saying you're sharing illegal data because, you know, you could, you know, you and I could be making, you know, sword fighting movies or something like that and, you know, raw 8K footage and sure. transferring it to each other or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Where we're burning through network capacity. Right. And they'll come after you for violations of terms of service for network capacity things mm-hmm. way more frequently than, you know, if you're downloading stuff unless you get caught. But this ISP is a, they provide, mainly provide internet connections to universities. Right. And other large format businesses. And they're basically like, one, you can't even prove this person committed a crime. Two, you're trying to compel us to do something where they haven't been brought through a court of justice. You're telling us to do something, deny somebody in service, and forcing us to render a judgment when no judgment's been rendered against them. You haven't proven it. Right. Like, and we dispute your technology to prove it. Right. And it was just a, it was a really interesting article to me to see a business basically saying, no, screw you. And that's something like recently where like, I can't remember the last time I downloaded something. Oh, I do remember the last time I downloaded something that I couldn't get legally. Right. Or that 
Yeah, so the last time I downloaded something that, like from BitTorrent, was the third season of The Detectorists. Yeah, yep. Because as it came out in the UK, I couldn't purchase it here. Right. Which is insane that, like, you didn't have it available to buy on Amazon. Right. US. Like, why? In in 2018, yeah. Especially when there is a fairly large audience here. I mean, I know a lot of people who watch The Detectorists. And Mm -hmm. um, I still haven't seen season three, I don't think. But, uh, well, maybe I did. Did you give it to me? I think you did. I think but, I gave it to you. I don't know if you watched it. Yeah, I don't remember. But great show. Um, oh, wonderful show. Yeah, and you'd think that in 2018, like this, but this is kind of, you know, this reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, the Cody Wilson interview on Fox when, when they kept, they kept asking him like questions about, uh, like how he feels about this and how he feels about that. And he, and he would kept, he kept bringing it back to the point where he was like, it is completely irrelevant. These questions you're asking me because we live in a different world. Now you guys are living in the world of like 1999. It's 2018. The conversation is over. Uh, you can do everything that you want to try to stop, you know, these, this digital, these digital files from existing or going online or being distributed in mass. And you can try to stop me, but you're not stopping them from being distributed. It's too late. Yeah, it's like the, it, you know, it's the, I heard it the other day, the person who supposedly came up with the, you know, ideas are like viruses. Yeah. Um, or like once it's out, there's no stopping it. Right, right. Yeah, well, that, that there's actually even some like weird metaphysical ones about that too, where ideas happen and they culminate in multiple places relatively simultaneously through uh so like the so when Alexander Graham Bell made his first call on the telephone like less than a week removed from that some dude did it in Italy as well and mm-hmm. it, and what it is is is, is th- there's been some pretty good explanations about it where it's like there is technology coming together and it is and it's uh, it's coming together and it's inevitable that these new advances are going to happen and they just mm-hmm. happen at the, roughly the same time in two different places. And we live in a world now where the information exchange is so much faster that you're going to be having these revolution... Well, they're, they're basically... We don't even recognize them as revolutions anymore. They're like micro-revolutions. So these things that just completely change the the game and uh, and this is kind of one of the things that Tony... Or Tony that uh, Cody Wilson was alluding to in a lot of his interviews where he goes, and you and I have actually talked about this quite a bit, I think we've talked about it on the show, is... I was about to say, we've discussed this on yeah, the show. It's that it's getting to a point where technology moves so fast and the world is changing so quickly that the Byzantine albatross that is government just can't keep up. And it's going to get to a point where it's irrelevant. And we live in a different world. Mm. And you know whether that yeah. happens tomorrow or it happens a hundred years from now, that's that could be debatable. But I, I think that we are in the process of moving away from the government really being able to exert any sort of control over information at all. And, um, and they they can do some things, and they can they can hurt individuals, but they can't stop it from spreading. Yeah, I I don't necessarily disagree with the concept of the idea, but mm-hmm. look at how effectively they buried the war in Yemen. Like, well, not very effectively twice? because well, not, a, lot of, a lot of people know about it and it still goes out. Now, granted, they, they've, they've effectively buried it from, I guess, mainstream public opinion. That, and that's what I mean yeah. is like, so... But but you, but if you look but if you look at the statistics, fewer and fewer people are getting their information from mainstream sources, and so yeah, it's getting to that, a point where the... you know this is news to those who read the news from not CNN, not Fox, not these kind of not the Hill, not 
you know, Huffington Post, not these kind of mainstream ones, even the kind of like alternative ones like io9 or Gizmodo or whatever, they're like edgy and new or Vice or whatever, like even that they are part of sort of the establishment. It's like zero hedge is not and, uh, antiwar.com is not and Lou Rockwell. Yeah, Lou Rockwell or like even like, uh, um, Alex Jones, who is kind of a wackadoo and, and wrong about a lot of things, but he's not wrong about everything. And people do use him as a news source. They're like, he's got, or like, you know what? A lot of people are getting their news from. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has 16 million downloads a month. Now, I don't know how many of those are unique downloads, but that's 16, potentially 16 million people listening to information from Joe Rogan. And a lot of that information that he's talking about is not talked about on mainstream news. Mm-hmm. And, well, and you know, this you know, is yeah. so Good. my thought process on that is so many people know about the war in Yemen, but it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And it's still happening in such a way that the second round of schools with actual children were destroyed. Yeah. We, you know, we had a uh, recognized, known, discussed hospital in Iraq that maybe it was Afghanistan, but, you know, doctors without borders. Yeah, that was Afghanistan where they just, like, yeah, that, where they just mowed it yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah, they mowed it down. And they were receiving radio calls while it was happening from people some people i can't remember if it was the people inside or people on you know uh, yeah i think it was like i think it was saying, like allied troops or something like that yeah. and they were going like telling them yeah, that like you know. you're destroying a hospital yeah like in you know i'm not necessarily saying that the soldiers who fired it knew this was a hospital and were purposely destroying it yeah without regard right not saying that's the case, but their immediate commanders did. Right. And they're not facing war crimes trials like the stuff that John McCain did. Sure. And pe- like, you know, so I, I, I'm on Reddit a lot. Yeah. And one of the things I really like is the Reddit trashy thread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so, a pretty good one. But there people are going like, oh, it's trashy to be excited John McCain died. Well, if your son or daughter were killed in any of the conflicts that he supported. Right. Like, or if you were a child of one of these countries that we bombed and then like and this is kind of the baffling thing to me like we bomb all these countries and do all this crazy nonsense and like we're not willing to accept half of these people as refugees yeah it's like they don't want to get blown up Mm -hmm. like i understand like from a you know 50 million feet view like well we don't want to let them in because we blew their house up so they're going to be terrorists it's like yeah that's the whole point like stop killing them but you know what? On the on the flip side of this, and, and it's very easy to focus on the negative because there is a ton of negative. But you remember in 2014 when Obama tried to go basically full bore into Syria and to start sending troops in and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and there was there was a sort of an uprising in the United States to stop it. Now it didn't stop it, but it does sort of show you that. When the when the war drums start beating, especially with you know the golden boy Obama in office, when the when the war drums start beating, the a large percentage of the American population is no longer listening, and and, and I think part of it's that they're war weary, the but I think also part of it is that you've got a huge you know a, a huge percentage of the population that used to you know get their NBC, CNN, you know all those types of mainstream media sources or whatever, they're dying, and uh, the people who are now coming up and being you know movers and shakers are internet people and the internet does not do a very good job filtering information to people so you you know the google news page and you and i've talked about this a little bit like i'm very suspicious of what google news has on my page um (laughs) because like there's stuff on there where i'm like how is this not on like this like actually this is going to go into my topic um 
like the South Africa stuff that's going on. How is that not on like, how is that not something that showed up on my newsfeed? There was South African news, but it had nothing to do with the conflict. So it did make me start going like, okay, so I'm not seeing the news that I've been hearing from these other sources, you know, Zero Hedge and Lou Rockwell and that sort of stuff. And I am seeing other information on this. So what's really going on here? Like, is there, is it, is it so distorted that like I'm receiving false information from the people who I trust or is it so distorted from the other side or is it not nearly as bad? What's going on? And, but that doesn't make, and I think this is not necessarily typical of our generation, but uh, something that is a part of our generation is that we go like, whoa, 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 we need to start doing some searching here because I'm not getting the same information from these two different sources because we consume so much media now. I mean, you and I talked about it. The amount of audiobooks and podcasts that I listen to on a weekly basis is like astronomical. I must I must listen to forty or fifty hours worth of audio a week. And yeah, so let's let's take some context to this. Yeah, Joe Rogan is doing sixteen million downloads a month. Yes, we've discussed this previously in off air, where you know. If you set your podcatcher to auto download, mm-hmm. it may, you know, we, we can't, you know, like you said, you yeah. don't know how many of those are unique. Yeah, so, I don't know how many they're unique. We also don't know how many people are actually listening and not just downloading. Cor- correct. So. But it used to be that if you didn't get 16 million views a week on a show, you weren't captured, you know, you, yeah. you could be canceled. Like there's a, in Bojack Horseman, there's a line where like, if we don't fall below 16 million a month, we're golden or, you know, 16 yeah. million views an episode or 16 million views an episode. It's some ridiculously high number. Yeah. But so you and I consume a lot of like news media. Right. My wife listens to Armstrong and Getty out of the, you know, San Francisco yeah. Central Valley area. And they're libertarian and, you know, they're definitely, they're not anarchists, but they're further along. They're like Jason Mm -hmm. where they're, they're pretty solid in most of their stuff, but they're also, you know, talk show or a radio show. So So they've got, you know, they're entertainment. So I kind of dispute how many people are getting real news. Like you and I go listen and look for and search for and seek out actual news. Yeah. But like my wife, you know, listens to Armstrong and Getty. She'll listen to the local news to hear the traffic report and the weather. Right. But she doesn't read Zero Hedge. She doesn't read CNN.com. You know, she doesn't consume news news. Right. Like she does, you know, go on Facebook and people share news and things like that. Um, and you know, she doesn't have a huge depth of crazy libertarian friends like you or I might or, you know, like isn't following specifically Michael Malice or somebody right. like that, where it's like, oh, they're going to give me the, you know, extreme anarchist position, that right. sort of thing. So I question one, how many people were actually ever consuming the news and the, the way people make it out to be? Yeah. Like, I think people were taking in news, but they may not have been react. They may have been reacting to it like, oh, we're supposed to be angry now. Yeah. And, and and that's where, like, I don't know how much of this is actually impacting people. Well, I'm not I'm, not, know, I'm just, not sure, but I do see, like, from, from at least from my perspective, and it may be because I'm naturally optimistic. Um, I, th- I think that our world is changing and in and more or less for the better there. 
there are some some disturbing trends. Like I really don't like the SJW stuff. I don't like the whole like oh making it okay for socialism. But I think that might be a little bit over exaggerated because when you actually like talk to these people who are kind of into socialism or they say they are, when you start talking to them, you're like, well, you're not really into socialism. You're you're like quasi status government people who thinks that socialism means something completely different than it does. Um, but which may be disturbing in its own way, but. You know, that's kind of, uh. Yeah, they're, they're I, much I, more I, into, they're much more into the idea of helping people. Well, I think a lot of it is, and I find this very encouraging, um, and it doesn't sound very nice, but I think what it is is mostly they're into themselves. And, uh, you know, this is one, this is a very Randian idea is that a lot of times people perform charity or advocate for things that are good for other people, maybe not because they really care about those other people. It's more because they want to, they want to either absolve themselves of guilt or make themselves feel good for being a good person. So, uh, now I know that you're not this way, but you just vote because you think it's fun. But like, I've always kind of had this feeling that like the people that go vote and then they wear the I voted sticker. It's like, yeah, at maximum effort, like you went and pulled a lever or pressed a button or stood in line or whatever for somebody who is probably or what is the, what's the law that uh, Tom Woods has where it's like whether you vote for Democrat or Republican, you always get John McCain. Yeah. So like that. Woods well, law. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and um, and that's kind of the deal is it's like people do things because they they do it for self interest generally speaking Mm -hmm. um and and even people who are charitable most of the time you do charity because it makes you feel good you feel bad because you see people who are on bad times and so you do something to help them and that makes you feel better so it is you know this is what Rand would i think call i think she called it invested self-interest so you it doesn't matter if it's it's altruistic or not you're really doing it because you're trying to change the way that you feel or the way that the world appears to you and i don't think that's a bad thing so these kids that are or kids people that are our age even and younger and, and older uh these people who are into socialism or whatever that a lot of it is because of their self-interest this is encouraging in the way that you can pivot the narrative and this kind of goes back to how to sell the message pivot the story you've got to tell them the story and the story is the market helps more people than the government does. And, and there's the twist. The twist is that it's not always visible. And you gotta explain to them how this works. It's like the force, you know, that to, it's, it's something that's a little bit different is that, you know, when, when Luke Skywalker was the young kid on the farm who was, you know, uh, bullseyeing, what, swamp rats or womp rats or whatever with his T16 back swamp home. Rats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, little did you know he was possibly the chosen one, you know, and or going to be one of the more powerful Jedi or that sort of stuff. So this is the, it's the twist. It's like you you need to change the narrative of the story. There's a structure of story and you need to change the story from the hero being the government to the hero being the individual. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's what it is. And so speaking of the government being the villain and people loving socialism and loving collectivism and all that sort of stuff. Let's bring this back to wine. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that I've been super concerned about, not really super concerned about specifically, but in, very interested in is that um, our, our good buddy Nate um, took a trip to South Africa. That's kind of what hit, brought him into wine. And through a series of events, that's what brought us into wine is his experience in South Africa. So I've been pretty interested in South Africa uh, and their, their wine industry for a while. And in particular, what's going on now, just to give people some background, the... Uh, Leader of the uh, ANC, which is their, um, I guess, leading party, is uh, he's basically a communist, and um, 
Well, yeah. This is they, Nelson they, Mandela's party, by the way. Yeah, yeah. This is Nelson Mandela's party, and Nelson Mandela was a communist too, and uh, he just had a he just told a really good narrative. Um, and and I'm sure you know well, that, to some degree he was a nice guy. His wife was atrocious; she was a murderer. But and he may have been too. I don't know. But uh, anyway, well, I mean, he he led a country that had the death penalty. So yeah, that's true. But uh, so well, at least I think they had the death penalty. Yeah, but kind of trying to rein it in a little bit. Uh, it's not about Mandela in this case, but what's going on right now in South Africa is back in February, the leading party, the ANC, with support from some of the other ones, um, passed a new law that uh, said that they could relieve white farmers of their land if they had more than, I think, 1,200 hectares um, without compensation. So basically, they are going to come in. Through, and the government is going to take the land away from these people. And then the way that it's been sold to me, and and this seems to the article that I was reading that I'm going to discuss today, um, sort of says that this is not exactly what's going on. I thought that it, they were taking it away and then giving it to black farmers. That's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. They're taking it. The state now becomes the custodian of the land, and it is leased to black farmers. Mm-hmm. So... This causes lots of problems, and one of the problems is, as you and I know, and those who are interested in Austrian economics know, um, if you do not own something, you do not take as good of care of it. So if you are leasing the land, your objective is going to be to get the highest amount of value from the land in the fastest way possible, not to preserve the land because you're, you may not have the lease renewed. Um, so in this article, the article, article is called South Africa Gears Up for a Takeover. Um, and this is from a, uh, website called Wine Searcher. Um, and it is by, I do not know who it's from or who it's by. It is just by Wine Searcher. So, um, basically what's going on right now in the wine industry in South Africa is they've been facing a pretty severe drought in South Africa. And this is damaging a lot of the vineyards in, in South Africa. They, they, they had one of their large, a large export and a, uh, very sought after wine, um, re- region in South Africa. This has been killing a lot of things. But on the other hand, a lot of the farmers have been very optimistic because with the emerging markets in places like China and the increased interest in wine in the United States and South uh, South America, that has raised the price of grapes. So even though they are having a hard time and they've had to like cut back on a lot of their production, the price per grape has gone up, and this has kind of made a balance. And, and a lot of the um, farmers have kind of taken in these various water management strategies to try to maintain the land, maintain production levels, and are doing a pretty good job at it. Um, now, the majority of the vineyards in South Africa are white-owned. So th- this is kind of goes into what the conflict is. And, and the, the conflict is mostly that the ruling party is black. This is South Africa. So the majority of the population is black. About 9% is uh, white. And within the population of whites, there are, uh, well, there's more than two, but the majority are either English or Afrikaans. Now, and Afrikaans are also known as Boer, but I guess Boer also just means farmer, so it's the, the Boer are the farmers. And the ANC is very antagonistic against the white farmers, which are the Afrikaans. They're not English, they are, I believe, Dutch descendant, and, um, they are, they're largely farmers, and a lot of them have been there for, since like the 14, the late 1400s, um, early 1500s. They've been there a long time. Uh, are you moving around a lot? I guess I am. <laughs> yeah, I can hear a lot of noise. So 
just to kind of give a little bit of background, that's what's going on now. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these farmers, they've they've ha- they've owned these farms, and and a lot of them are wine are are uh, vineyards. They've owned these farms just to give it a little perspective for longer than the United States has been around. Mm-hmm. So to to say that like, and this is kind of gonna. You know, you and I talked about this with Jason Stapleton when he was given the rundown of this. If you can prove that land was stolen, I do believe that the land should go back to the original owners or the uh, heirs of the original owners. But in this case, the evidence does show that whites arrived. They transformed a lot of the land that was not usable for farmland, but it could have been used for something else. But you, you know, you'd have to prove that. That that's part of the the requirement. Uh, they transformed that land into farmland because. Africa, as you can, or South Africa in particular, as you can see by the current drought, is a very dry region. And um, what the native inhabitants did not have the ability to do was drill down into the ground and open up wells. This is what whites brought to South Africa, is that they were able to, or Europeans, they were able to drill down into the ground, create wells, and they were able to transform the land into farmland. And uh, when they arrived, as they did in America, they brought with them lots of disease, and uh, a very large number of the population that was there died um, from smallpox. And um, obviously, you know, it wasn't intentional, but uh, a lot of people just died. So the land, when they started expanding their territorial claims, the land was mostly empty. And there were several tribes there, Koza are there, Zulu, Bantu, they're all there, but they didn't really um, fight them that much until they got to the northern and um, eastern parts of South Africa. So this part of Afri- of South Africa where the uh, Afrikaans live is the very southern, southwestern tip of Africa. So that's where a lot of these lands are, and that's where a lot of the wine-growing region is to kind of like rain all in. So I gave you guys like a lot of background information, mm-hmm. and um, so that's kind of the situation that we have going on. There's a, there's a drought. The farmers are a little bit optimistic because they're raising prices of um, grapes, but but we've got now the ANC, which is the ruling party, coming in making these laws that say that uh, white farmers are basically not allowed to own land anymore. They're going to start relieving them of that land. So um, now a lot of the a lot of the vineyard owners in South Africa that were interviewed for this article who decided to remain anonymous because for obvious reasons the tensions are um, pretty tight there. Um, they don't believe that the ANC is going to be able to do this. And this is actually a point of view that I haven't heard yet. Is that uh, a lot of these farmers say there's just not a big enough popular support for it. There is a problem. A lot of farmers are being attacked and uh, harmed by uh, who, people who say they are part of the ANC, um, but and and in very horrific ways too. Like they're you know captured and tortured and boiled alive and things like that. But uh, they are saying that they don't think that the force of government is going to be able to, to take to basically push for this. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the, there is a, the department of rural development and land reform in South Africa has already started taking action with compensation. And that is um, in particular one winery that they have taken over uh, called Solms Delta wine estate. Um, their plan was that they would purchase this um, vineyard from the owner. The They would allow the workers at the vineyard to continue to work it, and then they would end up paying rent to the government based on the performance of the vineyard. Um, now, this seems like maybe it would be an okay idea other than the fact that the government is owning it because they're going to hold it in custodianship. It will never be owned by the workers of the farm or anybody that privately. It'll be owned by the Department of Rural Land and Re- and Land Reform, or, or Land of, of Rural Development and Land Reform. Um and the other aspect of it is that this particular vineyard and, and uh, wine estate 
uh, was very poorly run and was kind of running in the black, uh, or, mm-hmm. or not running. Is, is black good or bad? Red. Red. Running it's in the red. red. Okay. So they were running in the red. So they were not doing well. The guy who owned it saw an opportunity to kind of get out and make some money. And so he sold mm-hmm. it to them. And now they are like, oh, this is going to be a perfect example for us to show what happens if, you know, we let the workers run it and rent it from the government. So. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of problems that are presented by this, and that is that the government's goal in this case is going to be to keep people employed. So the the merit of success and failure, this this company probably should have failed and been liquidated. Um, mm-hmm. Which in theory happened. Yeah, yeah, in theory it did it did liquidate. It was sold to the government, but the government's now going to dump money into this to keep it going for the people that are employed there. It doesn't it does employ quite a few people, um, and. And in this case, those the people theoretically they did work there before, so they theoretically know how to run a winery. But at this point, they kind of become wards of the state. And as a ward of the state, you the incentive structure is kind of turned on its head. So your goal is no longer to work as efficiently and prove yourself or produce a good product. Your goal kind of now becomes how to kind of slip under the radar and keep getting money. And well, so I have some slight issues with that concept. Uh, go ahead, though. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have enough to flush it out, yeah. but this may be something we have sure. to talk about some other time. All right. Yep. So anyway, so that's kind of one of the things going on. So to sort of summarize or whatever, the biggest fear that the wine growers in South Africa have at the moment is that uh, the land will be taken forcibly, and but there will be some compensation. It may not be the full value of the land. Mm-hmm. And that the fear is that the owners and operators will just leave and go to Australia, New Zealand, um, to the United States. Actually, some of them have already gone to Georgia, of all places. Not Georgia in the United States, Georgia the country. Um, oh, hell yeah. Yeah, which is weird that, that that's where they went. But And they're not growing wine there. They're growing, like, grain. Um, yeah, very strange. But so the fear is that, that they're going to basically sell the, the the owners of the estates. They're going to sell to the government just to kind of avoid the conflict and then leave. And then when they leave, the people that are left are just not – are going to know what they know. And if they're workers on the on the vineyard, they know that when the boss tells me to do this, I do this, and I know how to do this really well. I'm great at pruning grapes. I know that the boss says, okay, go out onto the, you know, the lower fifth or whatever – prune the grapes that's what i want and you're like you know what i'm a i'm a grape pruner i know what to do but the the person who owns the estate usually knows enough about everything that's going on to be able to coordinate that they do have a value that's the reason one of the reasons why profitable vineyards are rewarded is that the person who coordinates the activity knows what's going on he knows what he should do and he's also willing to take certain risk whereas the government doesn't usually do that and a, they don't, I'm sure that the government doesn't really know, unless they've got some sort of wine expert who like really believes in the government and they're going to make him in charge. That's not usually how the government rewards things. It's usually it's reward of connections. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think this is going to end up going kind of the same way as, uh, Ukraine back when Stalin relieved all of the landowners who knew how to farm of their land and nearly 20 million people starved to death. Um, this is probably what's going, and also what happened next door to the South Africa and Zimbabwe when they said white people can't own land anymore, and the white people went, we're out, and they left, and then a bunch of people starved to death, and they started asking the world, you know, the world for money to help feed their people. I think this is going to happen in South Africa. If things don't change now. Granted, the, these the wine growers there don't seem as concerned as a lot of the 
sort of alarmist rhetoric that I've been hearing from, you know, Stefan Molyneux and uh, actually, uh, what's his name, er Ernst something that he was on, Tom Woods, he's also been on Stefan Molyneux recently. Uh, there are a lot of horrific things going on in South Africa. They do have a lot of uh, problems and when it comes to race, um, but it may not be as serious as I thought it was, but it does seem that, that it is serious. It's serious in the fact that we won't be able to get good South African wine anymore because they're going to end up relieving these people of their land, and I'm not sure what government-made wine is going to be like. Well, so... <clears throat> There's a lot in that. And so my first thing is, and I think this is generalization taken from Austrian economics, which I don't think is incorrect, mm. but I think it doesn't belie the idea of personal choice. Mm -hmm. um, so just because the, you know, somebody becomes a government worker, and I'm using air quotes there, doesn't mean that they are going to suddenly start slacking off. You know, there are plenty of people who work for the government who don't slack off. Right. Now, well, are they optimally yeah. are not, they optimally yeah. efficient? Maybe not, but well, you know, this is my it, problem. My problem, just kind of to like clarify or whatever, it's not that they're going to sure. slack off. It's that the incentive structures are not there to make them work efficiently. Is the incentive structures are changed when the government is involved, and the there's not the profit and loss system that that sends signals to the market to tell entrepreneurs and and people acting in the market what's going on. So and we had the example of the Soviet Union where uh early on in the Soviet Union they had a, a shortage of uh moleskin, right? So uh so they they said okay, what we're going to start doing is paying people to go collect moleskins, right? And so a bunch of people went out so they started collecting moleskins um and they started bringing these mole pelts back and then some very smart so Soviet citizens were like, well, why don't we just capture the moles and start breeding moles? And so they started breeding moles, and the government was buying mole skins, and they would have warehouses and warehouses and warehouses of mole skins from these people who were growing them. But then they realized that if they stopped paying for them, because they didn't need them anymore, if they stopped paying for them, then that would disenfranchise a very large group of people. So they kept buying them, but they didn't have anybody to process that, process the skins, and they didn't have they didn't know they didn't have anything to do with the skins. Like they couldn't they didn't there wasn't really a market internationally that they could I guess that they could tell, and they would just stack up in the warehouse. So this there there's an incentive structure with the the government to there's always a incentive structure to game the system, but in the free market the system doesn't like being gamed. In the state-held market, it doesn't like being gamed either, but the government has the added advantage of beating people over the head that don't go along with what they want. So, but And so, and this is part of my point. Yeah. I am not in any way saying that this won't be the same, mm -hmm. but we are using past examples to quantify current action. And the best thing you can do is look at previous examples, apply collected knowledge, and attempt to predict outcomes. And I don't disagree. There isn't a profit and loss mechanism in essence, but there's always the possibility that the South African government could bring in additional workers who may be better educated in the situation of running a winery when they see it starts losing. Now, obviously, they don't have the incentive and things like that, but... I think my, my biggest problem structurally, and this is something probably for another show, okay. and I think I have to do some more reading as this, I don't always agree with the homesteading principle. Okay. 
my problem with the homesteading principle is to assume lack of action on a piece of property by a owner negates their right to the property if someone does improvements. And I, this may be my lack of understanding of the true concept of the homesteading principle. And so I own a million acres. Okay. And I own the million acres because, you know, I legitimately purchased them. No one else was out there living on them. Mm. You know, it's truly empty land. I have enough money to develop the first 100 acres. Mm -hmm. You, being a crazy guy, are way out on, you know, and let's just pretend that this is 100 acres wide and it goes for however many acres Mm -hmm. out so I'm developing a hundred wide, hundred wide acre strip one at a time, just working my way through developing in this. Mm-hmm. I have plans for when I have the capital to invest in the further land, but I'm not actively using it because okay. I can't because I don't have the capacity to. Well, you show up at the end, dam the river, make this reservoir, start doing churning power or whatever on my property. Right. I haven't sold you the property. You have technically improved the property, but it's not property that I sold you. It's not property that I wasn't going to use. Yep. I just couldn't use it now. For me, okay. rent seeking makes sense at that point where I'm collecting, you know, you owe me money for the stealing of my land, right? even though I wasn't productively using it. Okay. So I have a recommended recommended reading for you for next week. Okay. Uh, there, okay. there is a... Um, essay by Walter Block, <laughs> of course, called uh, Popsicle Sticks and Homesteading Land for Nature Preserves. And I think in this, and among others of his writing, he does give a pretty good explanation for A, homesteading, and B, what constitutes abandoning the property. So, um, and I think that they are good general rules for those types of things. So, um, now granted, this is why courts exist, not necessarily a government court, but why uh, third-party arbitrators exist and why in Anarchostan or whatever you would probably have agreed to some sort of third-party arbitration. But to kind of just give a general summary for the listeners and maybe an anticipation for next week's episode when we talk about homesteading. Um, and maybe, you know, I have a new idea that I want to do is start doing some YouTube videos um, and start mm-hmm. calling them uh, Liberty Topless. So <laughs> so then people will, will be... Uh, kind of enticed because they'll think there'll be like some boobs but there's no boobs it's just that liberty is revealed like a person when they take their shirt off is revealed so so it turns out you're the boob exactly (laughs) listening to the video right right exactly so uh what i would like to do in that is kind of write up summaries and just sort of give an explanation of, of of concepts that i think i take for granted a lot of times in libertarianism so this essay that Walter Block wrote, it's called Popsicle Sticks and Homesteading Land for Nature Preserves. I recommend everybody reads it. Uh, you can do a quick Google search. I think it's the first one that comes up if you type in Walter Block Popsicle Sticks. Um, mm-hmm. And it was uh, published in the Romanian Economic Business Review um, like uh, several years ago, I think back in like the late 90s. Um, but uh, basically the concept is – so this kind of goes back to Adam Smith – I think, and the concept of homesteading is that you go to virgin land, right? You And the virgin land is land that has been untouched by humans or not improved upon by humans. So somebody, you know, just walks through it. It's not homesteaded, right? Uh, unless they are using it as a thoroughfare. If you're constantly walking through the same land, then you are homesteading it. You're homesteading as a thoroughfare, right? So um, anyways, you come to virgin land. 
you you land on the virgin land you you go into the virgin land and you mix your labor with the virgin land so in in essence this is metaphysical to some degree too this is an extension of the uh self ownership principle or the even the nap just to kind of go very primal on it is that you own yourself you're born nobody else has a prior claim to you than you so you own yourself you own your and therefore you own the actions of your body and your body arrives at land that nobody else has touched right and you mix your labor with the land and you and that appropriates that land to you and so to the extent that you you mix it and for the purpose that you are using the land that is the land that you own so let's say and i've used this example i think with you before is let's say you go up to northern alaska and there's you know i don't i don't recognize the government's claims so whether or not they own like northern alaska or not is irrelevant to me but let's say that you go up there you uh find some land you uh, take the product of your labor, your wealth, and you pay some people to come and build a, you know, a big tower or something like that. And the big tower, the purpose of the tower is, uh, you advertise down here and you say, now come to Northern Alaska and see the unmarked beauty of, uh, Alaska in, um, you know, 360 degrees or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So you go up there and people start coming and you sell them tickets or whatever and, and they come and they, they get up in the tower and they look around, they get up to the tower and they, you know, walk around the tower and they see, you know, 360 degrees, right? And, uh, then at night, you know, the aurora borealis and like you have all these great, you know, you know, selling points or whatever. But, uh, so now you have homesteaded this unclaimed land, unclaimed, unhomesteaded land. So not just claimed, like, you know, a government can come by and like, poke their flag into the dirt or whatever that doesn't mean that they own that land you have to mix your labor with it and appropriate it to yourself so anyway so you've you've come to this virgin land and now you can see let's say let's say i don't know how 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 far can you see in in the distance from a tower like a mile uh, it depends on the height but more than that okay so however long you can see it you see you do this and somebody somebody comes in and they go like uh you know what? i'm gonna go hunting in that land right and they go hunting and you go hey you can't hunt on my land no they can't hunt on your land because especially if they do it far away because you can't see it so you homesteaded that property for the purpose of being able to see the un you know the unbridled land or whatever now, on the other hand, assume that that same guy who came here to hunt, he comes and he builds a, you know, half a mile tall tower right next to your tower. He can't do that because now he is disrupting your property rights. You have a property right in the view, the 360 view of that tower that you built because that's what the purpose of the tower was. Now, change this again and say that you do a 360 or whatever tower or whatever and that and that you've homesteaded it for that and somebody flies an airplane over but very, very high up so you can't see it and you go, ha, you're violating my property or whatever. You've you've flown over it. No, you you haven't. You can't see it. You homesteaded the view. You didn't homestead the land. So if people come through or if they dig under it and they build a tunnel through or any of these things that you can't see from the tower, then uh, you have not homesteaded those things. Now, imagine that very, 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 very far away without the, you know, there's somebody in there like we've discovered how to build like Antarctic farms or whatever, you know, or or I guess Arctic farms because it's it's, uh, northern Alaska. And they're like, well, we're going to build this Arctic farm. We're going to do all these things and stuff like that. And you're like, well, I can see it really, really far away, right? And so that person, it would behoove them to approach you and say, um, I'm going to do this. Uh, I would like to pay you an easement, right? So uh, 
then you've got some commerce going. You can allow them to do the easement or not. And if you don't allow them, then they just build a little bit further away out of your view, right? So you have homestead that land. Now, let's then assume that uh, you've homestead this land for the view or whatever, and 50 years go by, you haven't gone up there, you haven't advertised it, you haven't, your your tower fell over, um, and uh, and then somebody goes and builds that farm. And you go, hey, hang on a second, I homestead that land for the view, right? Well, no, you haven't been up there in 50 years, your tower fell over, and... You have you. Nobody's been up there. You're forestalling. You're trying to hold this land, and you're not either. You're not acting on it. Uh, and I think that is kind of maybe where you and I will have. I guess maybe have a debate or a contention is that uh, you can't hold land indefinitely or property indefinitely and claim that you're using it unless you're actually using it. So the only place where I would see possibly, and maybe I'll give you this part as a start and you can and you can uh read into walter block's paper on this because this is one area where like when i talked to him briefly about it like i was like i'm not really sure i understand this part is um and his response basically was well you just don't have a defendable claim on it is what if you want to homestead something just for the psychological thrill of having something that nobody else has right so Uh you go you build the tower and then you leave and the tower falls over and all that sort of stuff and you go like hang on a second i had a psychological property right in knowing that the land was untouched and that I could go up there at any time and, you know, go onto my tower's ruins or whatever. Walter Block's, I guess, position on this, and if you read the paper, he'll talk about it, is that, well, it's not really a defensible claim. So it's it's sort of like uh, de minimis property rights violations. So let's say that, like, I you have a house, and I walk by your house, and I, and I, really, I really quickly shine a laser on the side of your house, right? So laser, it's not doing any damage to you. I just really quickly did it for like a millisecond. Laser, and then left, right? And then you go like, hang on a second, you violated my property rights by shining a laser. Pretty much anybody's going to go like, yeah, I didn't do any damage. Like, uh, you're not, you know, whatever. Like, you, Jacob, you owe him a penny. And then I'm like, okay, whatever, here's a penny. Like, I shined, you know, it, it's it's a de minimis violation of property rights. Yeah, I did shine photons onto your property or whatever, but uh, it's it's kind of irrelevant. So it's kind of like this is going to be the same thing. Is like I haven't been to the land in a long time, uh, past the norm. You know, there is in libertarian justice theory a lot of normalization. So like cultural normalization. So through the normalized standards, I haven't been there. I haven't used it. My my the stuff that I built on there as the improvements has gone into decay and disrepair. Maybe I had plans to do something with it, but I have not demonstrated. I haven't put money in the bank to save up. I haven't paid off my debts to save up. I haven't done any of these things that demonstrates that I have an intention to go back to that land and make the changes that I want. Yeah, that's always been my intention, just like it's my intention always to write a book and I never take any action on it. But uh, my intentions are not actions. So if I can't demonstrate that I've taken actions, then you're not really taking anything away from me. You're you're just basically taking over abandoned property. And it's and as an entrepreneur, it's your it's your risk as an entrepreneur to see that ah some Somebody has made improvements to this land, but from my perspective, these improvements are old and out of repair. So it would be up to me to make the case that you've abandoned it in what would be culturally and normally or uh, not, not, not normally, whatever the accepted to whatever accepted degree it is. Right. So. Uh, if you, you know, your land in Alaska, the tower fell all over, you haven't been there in 50 years, I might go like, eh, it doesn't look like he's had it, he hasn't been here, he hasn't put any money aside to repair the, the, the tower, uh, he hasn't made any sort of comment on the tower in years, all that sort of stuff, yeah, I'll go ahead and make my, my arctic farm or whatever, and then I'll go like, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll defend myself in court or whatever, and my insurance company... They will take that into account when they insure me as well. They'll be like, okay, well, the land looks like it might have been claimed at one point by this guy, 
but he's made no actions or anything to preserve it. Um, it's just he's abandoned it, or he's dead, or you know, one of those types of things. You know. Yeah, and and that's where I guess. So, and this is one of those things where you know, theory is theory, and it can't be everything. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem I have with this is this is indicative of proving something to someone and that's a bad way of phrasing it but like the problem i have with it is you i purchase something and i put some sort of resource into it right whether i continue to use it or not is up to me but I have put a claim to it by putting what was presumably the legal owner of action into it. And that's one of the things that's like, you know, you started a description off with virgin untouched land. And, you know, I, I do need to read the article by Walter Block. Yes, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things that is kind of frustrating is like, well, what if it's not virgin land then? Right. Like I had made an improvement. Well, it's no longer virgin land. So I made an improvement. You think the improvement's derelict, but what if I wanted the tower to follow? Like well, I yeah. wanted to make this improvement. Yeah, it may it may very well still be your land. Then it just you'd have to that if I moved up there and made my farm, you know, and then you realize years later that I made my farm there, and you're like, ah, you know, my my tower it fell over and I was up there or whatever. You'd have to demonstrate because look here, this is the I guess the crux of the argument is that as a as a as an Austrian, like an Austrian anarcho-capitalist or whatever, everything should be owned and everything should be utilized. And the reason, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we, we believe this is that you should be maximizing, not necessarily maximizing utility, but you should be maximizing ownership. So as Walter Block says, if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. Yeah, and that, nothing and so should be available is... in the public. Nothing should be available unused. The, everything in in the universe is for the betterment of the individual, and, and it should and be appropriate. And I think that's the problem I have with this: is this homesteading principle mm-hmm. is based on the concept of coming upon a plot of land mm-hmm. that has no ownership. And my problem is. Well, you know what? Why don't you read the article? Because it's we're, mm-hmm. we're already we're yeah. already hour forty in. I'm going to send you the article, read it, do some research, and you and I will plan on having discussion about this next week when we uh, are going to share a wine from time-traveling distances in different parts of the country. Yes. Uh, but also because Aldi exists in both of our locations. Uh, I'm, going to go, <laughs> exactly. I'm, going to, I'm going to send you the article, read over the article, maybe it'll answer some of your questions, because this article was directed to me by Walter Block when I asked him about it, because I had similar questions to what you have. And so I asked him, when I had the opportunity and I said, uh, this is, you know, how do you, home-? The, the question that I asked him was like, how do you homestead something for the sake of it being a nature preserve? And he said, ha ha, I wrote an article about this. Here it is. <laughs> so, uh, Walter Vlock, who has pure, has, uh, either written or co-written hundreds of articles, has pretty much written something on every subject. And I'm over I'm, 500. Yeah. And so I'm very happy to add this into the show notes, um, so that the listeners can also listen to it. And then if you, uh, I'm going to add it to this show notes so that when the next episode comes out, if you guys want to read it, you'll have an idea of what Mason and I are talking about. And, um, mm-hmm. you can, and you can comment on it, uh, by either Twitter, uh, Twittering, tweeting me at, um, or Mason when he occasionally looks at it, um, at, <laughs> at Tasting Anarchy, um, on Twitter. On Twitter. Or you yep. can, you can email us. I do, I do check, uh, our Gmail occasionally. We once in a while get people emailing us, um, very rarely, but it does happen. Um, Gmail, or Tasting Anarchy at gmail.com. Um, we don't have a Facebook, but you can go to our website, which is tastinganarchy.com, 
And if you would like to, uh, I ha I believe that when this show goes up, it will be a, it will be a blog post and the comments will be enabled. I don't check them very often, but, um, I believe that we get a Gmail alert when it happens. So I will take a look at that and we'll be able to address any comments or concerns that because it's, you know, private show, private property. If we find it valid, then we'll address it. If we don't find it valid, then we'll probably ignore it. But we love the interaction, and mm-hmm. um, we're very happy that our listeners are listening and responding. Yeah. Um, so that's all wow. I have. Uh, let me re- re- recap the wine real quick. It's a Georg- mm-hmm. it's a Georgian wine from Wine Man, um, twenty sixteen. It's uh, made by the Sapper Sapper Avi grape varietal. It's also Sapper Avi is the name of the wine. Um, this wine is twelve percent alcohol by volume. It is fermented in clay. And also an oak. Uh, and that is all I have to say about that. Mason, do you have anything else to add this week? So a, um, the article I was reading was from the register. So the register.co.uk. Um, and it was from Kieran McCarthy. I, I forgot to um, kind of comment on that previously. Um, okay. No, um, you know, like Jacob said, uh, reach out, you know, questions, concerns, that sort of thing. Um, just, you know, be patient. And uh, if you have something for someone specific, indicate who. So that way one of us is not responding when the other is desired to be responded. <laughs> all right. Great. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, I will talk to you all next week. Have a great night. Have a good one, everyone. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Cherry, cherry. Blackberry. Port and sherry. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfrey at Willie's Den, he wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the Yodi drink wine. Wine for the Yodi drink wine. Wine for the Yodi drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, so do you to drink wine. Wine, so do you to drink wine. Wine, so do you to drink wine.